the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. We're looking at that uh, in verse 9 when um, John is upbraiding the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He warns them, Don't say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And it's only been in the last 20 years or so that there's been a shift, at least in some circles, in an understanding of first century Judaisms and re- with regard to how the early Judaisms considered salvation. Uh, I think most people even today would say, I mean, most Typically, church-going people, if you were to ask uh, them, say you were on the streets of Jerusalem in the first century and you went up to someone who was a Jewish person, a religious Jewish person, and you ask them, how is it that you uh, hope to have a place in the world to come? I think if you were to ask most uh, church-going Christians today what the answer would be, they would say what? Keeping the law, right. Salvation by works. But that isn't exactly what John uh, intends for us to understand here, is it? He says, and don't think to yourselves, we are Abraham's children. In other words, the point that was made, you know, has been made in the last 20 years over and over again, and it's, it's debated, but is that the Jewish people by and large believed that they had a place in the world to come simply because they were Jewish. And as long as they didn't do anything terrible... Uh, that would cause them to be cut off from their people and therefore cut off from the covenant. They were secure because God had chosen Israel and God had promised his blessing upon them. And therefore, if they were Jewish, um, they were in. And so the question is, well, in what way then is Paul combating? It seems like Paul is regularly combating salvation by works, right? Not you're not justified by the works of the law, but by faith. I mean, who's he talking to? And uh, the answer to that is that it, uh, twofold. First of all, it's natural for fallen humanity to think we can earn our way into God's favor. You don't have to have a religion to to to, to think that. You just have to be born a sinner. Because we honestly think that somehow, well, if we do, you know, if we balance out our good with our bad, then we'll probably probably be okay. And because we think that God will treat us the way that we treat other people. You know, if we have somebody who basically is a fairly good person, you know, when they do something wrong, they try to make amends and so forth. Well, we we receive that person. You take somebody who's constantly uh, doing wrong, and you you have a tendency to think this. You know, you'd rather not be friends with that person. So we think the same thing is true with our relationship with God. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is is that a lot of times Paul probably has Gentiles in mind. Not all the time. I mean, there's no doubt about the fact that, that he sees the uh, his Jewish brothers and sisters as arrogantly thinking they can find their way to to a place in the world to come based upon their keeping of the Torah in the sense that they maintained their covenant relationship with God through that. But if if the common teaching was that if you're Jewish, you're in, then what did a Gentile have to do? Become Jewish. 
and and the rabbis the rabbis had uh, had developed a nice little ceremony for them in order so that they could be called Jewish could become Jewish but in order for them to do that they had to go through certain kinds of steps and certain kinds of things they had to fulfill the works of the Torah in order to become Jewish and so we ought to always keep our eyes open when we're studying Paul with that in mind now the the verse that we have or the area that we have here in Matthew where John himself says don't think that don't think to yourselves we are the sons of Abraham and with the idea that that's going to get you in and and his point is is that God if he wants to can raise up from these stones right here laying around can raise up children of Abraham so in other words the point is it's based upon God's mercy and not upon uh you know your your lineage or who your father and mother are and so forth and so on now, that brings us into this whole section of, of John's... I mean, he's acting like a prophet here. He is really laying it on them. He's not mincing any words. He says in verse 10, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So it's not only that you can bear fruit, but you have to bear what kind of fruit? Good, good fruit. And what, what is good fruit as far as John is concerned? I mean, there can be bad fruit. There's some trees that can put out some pretty bitter kinds of, of fruit, but there has to be good fruit. Well, let's, let's study this. Having given the imagery of bearing fruit, because he already said to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, what, what are you doing out here? Bring forth fruit that relates to repentance or is worthy of repentance. Having already mentioned fruit, the wrath to come as the judging hand of God as the, kingdom, uh, as the king of the kingdom is pictured as the husbandman clearing trees that have ceased to produce fruit. There is little time left because the axe is already laid at the root. Some have suggested that when a husbandman would go through, he would mark trees that were going to be cut and uh, possibly uh, marking them with his, with his axe as he went along. You know, cut this one, cut this one. And some have suggested that's what it means. I couldn't find any data to say that they actually did that, but it makes sense to me. I know when, when my dad and I would cut wood, uh, he would mark trees that, or branches and so forth that way. It's possible. The imminent coming of the kingdom of heaven means that the judgment is close at hand. Such a picturesque metaphor is appropriate on several accounts. First, the prophet had already given the picture of God leveling trees with an axe as part of his judgment and wrath. And secondly, a saying of Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah contained in Perkei Avot might indicate that the metaphor of trees was something already used by the sages. It would make sense to me since it's used in Tanakh. He would say, anyone whose wisdom is greater than his deeds, to what is he to be likened? to a tree with abundant foliage but few roots. What happens to a tree that has a lot of foliage and hardly any roots? Yeah, it, it, the storm comes, it falls over. When the winds come, they, they will uproot it and blow it down. As it is said, he shall be like a tamarisk in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit at the parched places in the wilderness. But anyone whose deeds are greater than his wisdom, to what is he to be likened? To a tree with little foliage but abundant roots, for even if all the winds in the world were to come and blast at it, they will not move it from its place. As it is said, he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreads out its roots by the river and shall not fear when heat comes and his leaf shall be green and, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. So combining some 
scriptures there, Jeremiah 17.8. So what is it in Perkei Avot? is the collection of the most famous sayings of some of the most famous rabbis. They were the, these were the sayings that they would have been known for. So apparently this, this uh, rabbi Elazar ben Azariah uh, was known for his using trees as metaphors for what is uh, somebody who's worthy and somebody who's not. Thirdly, Yochanan's admonition to the Pharisees and Sadducees was that they should, quote, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The actual word in the Greek is uh, worthy of repentance. Thus, his continued use of the tree-fruit metaphor in relationship to the coming judgment fits his message perfectly. The emphasis upon the root pushes the metaphor to the final judgment. It's not merely unproductive branches that are pruned. We know that Yeshua speaks in that way uh, in other parts of the gospel, right? The branch that doesn't bear fruit is trimmed off and thrown into the fire. But this isn't just the branch. This is the whole tree. A parallel is found in the, in the parable of Yeshua about the unproductive fig tree. There, a tree that had not produced fruit for three years is marked for destruction by the owner. Why does it even use up the ground, the owner says. The worker, however, pleads for more time. Let it alone, sir, for this year, too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. The point of the parable is that the judgment is coming and those without fruit will be destroyed. However, some mercy is being shown by calling Israel to repentance and the fruit of righteousness. Yochanan's message is that the time of mercy is drawing to a close. The owner of the trees will require that the unproductive ones be destroyed, and he is currently making a distinction between those with and without fruit. This is a very common theme in the Gospels. It's extremely common in Tanakh, but it's very common in the Gospels, and it's not uncommon in the epistles. And it is this. When the king comes, he judges us based upon our works. Now, immediately people say, wait, 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 Tim, we're not saved on the basis of our works. I agree, 100%. But the regular admonition of in the gospels and in the epistles is that when he comes he judges the fruit and the trees with fruit remain and the trees without fruit are destroyed so how do we reconcile that with what we know to be true and that is salvation is by faith in other words we don't win or gain salvation by what we do but how then are are we judged according to what we do as to whether we're righteous or unrighteous? Well, well, the answer is, I think, is obvious, and that is someone who, who does have true faith will inevitably produce fruit. We can, say the, we can say the converse. Someone who does not produce uh, righteousness in their life, does not live according to God's ways in their life, and none of us are perfect. All of us, you know, part of living according to God's ways is that when we, when we fail and when we sin, we, we seek his forgiveness and we confess our sins and we make things right. I mean, that is part of righteous living. So it's not talking about perfect living. None of us can do that. But it means that our lives are characterized by righteousness, not by unrighteousness. This is, seems to be a disconnect in a lot of uh, teaching in our day. The idea is, is that if you, you know, if you signed your name on the dotted line or if you raised your hand or if you went forward or whatever, God has given you basically a blank check. I mean, you're in and you'll never get out and there you go. And so the idea of a changed life is not, is not the predominant teaching. The predominant teaching is you said yes to this insurance policy and so you're covered. You know, you got a you got a 
big time fire escape and that's really all you need. Um, boy, that is not the message of John the Baptist in our text. He's saying the axe is laid at the root. The, the, ju- the judgment's coming. We don't hear a lot. Uh, well, maybe I, at least I haven't. Of course, I don't listen to the radio or watch television all that much. But um, are, are there still are there still teachers and preachers and so forth teaching about judgment, coming judgment? Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, I used to read the Puritans a lot. That maybe they overemphasized that. I don't know. But they, they had a lot of messages on that. <laughs> all right. Adding to the finality of the coming judgment, the trees that are cut down are thrown into the fire. This metaphor of the final judgment as a consuming fire comes from the prophets and became a common figure in the early Jewish literature. Interestingly, Malchi includes both roots and branches in his prophetic vision of the final judgment. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch." Now, I think it's interesting because he, you wonder if, if Yochanan, if John the Baptist has uh, Malachi in, in his mind or he, because he's kind of fulfilling this, this role of Elijah who's coming in advance of the Messiah and preparing the way. The point again is that the coming judgment is final. Those trees that are cut down and thrown into the fire will forever be lost. There is coming a time when repentance will no longer be possible. Thus, the message of Yochanan is made that much more urgent. This urgency is not only highlighted by the opening already, when it says already the the axe is laid, but also by the fact that all of the verbs laid, bearing, cut down, and thrown are in the present tense. It's as though John is saying it's happening. We're watching it happening right now. In the coming of the Messiah, the judgment of God has begun since he is the touchstone of true righteousness and he is the one to whom the Torah has always pointed. You understand what I mean by touchstone? Well, there were certain kinds of mineral stones that they would use to check other minerals by, particularly gold and other things. It wasn't an absolute sure test, but if you would strike it, it would make you could tell what you had in your hand as to the sounds that it made and the marks that it left and so forth and so on. And I don't, I'm not a metallurgist, so I don't know all of that, but that's what a touchstone was. Um, it was a way of checking another stone to see if it was this mineral or that mineral. So, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, Yochanan says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You know, we could stop and, and do a month of uh, Wednesday nights on baptism in the Holy Spirit, but we probably won't. <laughs> it would be interesting, however, just to, uh, you know, I suppose all of us, any of us who, came, who have come from church backgrounds will have a particular perspective or at least be aware of a particular perspective based upon baptism in the Holy Spirit, what that means. But, you know, I, I, as I was preparing this, I was reminded that very often when people talk I've had people come up and ask me, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? I always say yes, because I believe I have. I'm not sure that what I think it entails is what they think it entails, but nonetheless. But I think it's very interesting that very seldom in our day do you ever hear anybody say, have you ever been baptized by the Holy Spirit in fire? 
You know, and here's an early reference to the to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's combined with fire. What does that mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Question. Yeah. The question is, um, how do we understand Yochanan's role in, in the actual baptizing process? Because it sounds like he's uh, he's dunking them, or he's dipping them, or he's pushing them over in the water, or he's putting his hand on top of their head, or he's walking out with them, or whatever. Well, there there seems to be no reason to think that he wasn't in the water. That probably was uh, could well have been the case, and. What at least I think is a very real possibility is that he was functioning as a witness for them. In other words, he was calling the people to repentance. And a mikvah, as we've studied in the past, was symbolic of that uh, moving from one status to another status. In this case, from, from maybe someone who was lackadaisical in their religious fervor or who was um, not... Uh, really concerned about the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom and so forth and were therefore uh, negligent in their life with regard to the commandments and so forth, they would confess their sins and not to John but but to God and come out to the Jordan and do this mikvah as as a demonstration that they, okay, they're ready to get their life on track and whatever. Now, I, I, as far as we know in the mikvah of the first century, uh, they're, they're, the rabbis had said you had to be entirely immersed. Nothing could be uh, out, out of the water. And so it became common for people to have a witness that, in fact, they had gone all the way under especially since the Torah requires the mikvah in, in numbers of cases for ritual purity. And again, from the rabbinic standpoint, if you don't fulfill the commandment entirely, you haven't fulfilled it. So when it says he shall wash his body, it was understood to mean wash all of your body, which means all of it has to go into the water, which means to fulfill that commandment, somebody has to say, yeah, I have a witness, because then you, know, you have a witness, that, usually two. So here's Yochanan who's out at the Jordan and he's probably acting as a witness. And that, I think, is what is being said, read, said here. That was not understood by the emerging Christian church. The emerging Christian church, of course, as we know, uh, made baptism a part of one's salvation, an actual forgiveness of sins, an actual cleansing of sins. Very early on, you have baptism and the Eucharist as necessary for salvation. And therefore, very early on, it became paramount to decide who could administer baptism and who couldn't because you're like giving away salvation. So, yeah, he's encouraging them. He's probably, he may be helping them. But, you know, he may even be praying with them. I don't know. He may be saying blessings, maybe helping them with, you know, you could imagine that there might have been some who came to do a mikvah and didn't know how to do it. You know, maybe, I mean, they were, you know, unschooled in these things. We don't know. The Pharisees and the Sadducees seem to have wanted to jump on the bandwagon, though, because they were there. Or maybe they thought, wow, let's go out there and find out what's going on. You know. But at any rate, uh, John tells them that this is not just playing religion, that it, that it is uh, uh, a sign of true repentance. Okay? Yochanan's baptism was the mikvah in water, and it was with a view to or connected with repentance in that it demonstrated in an outward way what was to be an inward reality. The point is that Yochanan's call to repentance was combined with the desire for personal purity as demonstrated in the mikveh. Yochanan could only call people to repentance in light of the imminent kingdom of heaven. He could not, however, affect the necessary repentance. This inner work is the result of divine activity. 
So immediately he's, we're seeing that he's contrasting what he's going to do with what Yeshua is going to do. Yeshua is going to be able to change the heart. John can just call people to repentance. He can't bring repentance. You know, you can bring a person to the mikveh, but you can't make them repent. Right? Okay. He who is coming after me surely alludes to the coming one language prevalent in the Messian expectations of late Second Temple Judaism. The phrase from Psalm 118.26, which we all know, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai, was understood messianically by the apostles at least. I couldn't find anywhere in the rabbinic literature where they referred it to the Messiah, but I think it's probably there. I probably just didn't find it. In Midrash Rabbah on Genesis 49.10, you remember this is the prophecy of the Messiah. Uh, this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until... Shiloh comes, and in the Midrash on Genesis 49.10, until Shiloh comes was interpreted as referring to the Messiah. And Targum Onkelos translated the phrase, until the Messiah comes, whose is the kingdom, and him shall the nations obey. Likewise, in Midrash Rabbah Song of Solomon 2.22, the phrase uh, in verse uh, two, or chapter 2, verse 8, Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, is interpreted as referring to the coming Messiah. So in presenting himself as the forerunner of the Messiah, Yochanan takes up the role of Elijah as the harminger of the Messiah at the end of days. He who is coming after me. And I don't think, I think that was, I think when he said he who is coming after me, everybody knew that it wasn't just an, a, another associate that was going to help him baptize. He, he who is coming uh, referred to the Messiah. We always read it that way, but we never stop to think about it maybe. Yochanan describes the coming one as mightier than I, that is, with greater strength and power. This no doubt refers to the powerful impact of the kingdom which the Messiah would bring. Did he bring that powerful impact? You see, you, see, you, you can understand why many were disappointed at his coming. If you had been under the thumb of uh, foreign powers for that many hundreds of years, and you had been told generation after generation after generation that when the Messiah comes, he will, he will give you freedom. He will get, take you out from underneath all of that tyranny. And when he comes, he doesn't do it. Um, you can understand why, why there may have been some disappointment. The, when, the, way, the way Yochanan is describing this coming one, um, you have every reason. I mean, if you were just, I'm, I've tried to put myself there next to the Jordan listening to what Yochanan was saying and thinking, Wow, it's the end. This is it. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. The whole thing is coming down. That's, that's, how his, that's how his words sound, don't you think? When you first listen to them, that's the way it sounds. So this powerful impact of the kingdom was what he was talking about. But his greater strength is not only in his ability to bring the kingdom of heaven to reign upon the earth, but also in his own honor and majesty. Yochanan considers himself unworthy to act as his servant to carry his sandals. We notice that Mark and Luke have Yochanan saying he is unworthy to untie his sandals. Um, however, the word that we translate here to carry may also have the meaning untie. Regardless, Yochanan uses the hyperbole to heighten the majesty of the coming one who is the Davidic king. It was You understand what I mean by hyperbole. Surely he was worthy to untie his shoes. I mean, the lowest servant could untie shoes. So, but when he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, means that when compared to him, I'm not even in the same ballpark. You know, obviously, that's what he's saying. 
It was commonly held by the sages that the duty of a Gentile servant or slave, as well as one's son or pupil, it's interesting that a son and a student is on the level of a Gentile slave. I think we should teach that to all of our sons very early. These included that of carrying his master's shoes, particularly in connection with the bathhouse. In the commentary on Exodus, rabbinic commentary on Exodus, we read, the sages said, a Hebrew slave must not wash the feet of his master, nor put his shoes on him, nor carry his things before him when going to the bathhouse, nor support him by the hips when ascending steps, nor carry him in a litter or a chair or a sedan chair as slaves do. For it is said, but over your brother and the children of Israel you shall not rule one over another with rigor. That's from Leviticus 25:46. In other words, you're to be equal. So the sages said, you know, if you have a Hebrew slave, you can't tell him, put my shoes on. You know, buckle my shoes or tie my shoes. He's stooping down below you. That's not his, that's not his place. However, one's son or pupil may do so. Okay, so if you're, a, if you're a rabbi and you have a student, you can say, carry my books. You can say, you know, I'm going to the bathhouse, grab my clothes. Um, you know, my shoes untied with you. So, Yoganon thus puts himself in the lowest of status when compared with the coming Messiah. Not worthy. Well, Yochanan's activity related to the water mikveh, the coming one would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The figure of immersion so well demonstrated in the mikveh was already linked metaphorically to the outpouring of the Spirit by the prophets. He said, I will sprinkle water upon you and make you clean, right? And the very fact that you have the verb pouring with regard to the Spirit tells you that it's connected with liquid, right? Okay, so to have the spirit poured out upon you shows you that that from the from very early on, the spirit of God was metaphorically viewed in the context of water. Now, that makes perfect sense because water cleanses, water cleans. And the spirit was known as the Ruach HaChodesh, the spirit who makes holy, the spirit who makes clean. Okay, so you can see how it was natural for the metaphor of water to be used as a spirit. But besides that, you're filled with the Spirit, right? Which is another, another connection to the metaphor of a liquid because you fill a vessel, you fill a pot uh, or a glass with water, whatever. So that the picture of being immersed in the Spirit in the sense of being entirely overtaken by His presence was a ready figure of speech for Yochanan. You know, pe- people uh, haggle over, does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit or to be baptized with the Spirit? Well, what's the difference? Um, we, we tend to get, try to get so nitpicky about what these words mean. The, the spirit is a spirit. The spirit is not substance. But we talk of the spirit as substance. Otherwise, how, how else could we talk of him? Okay. So what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? Well, you know, Paul, Paul uh, uses the opposite metaphor of being filled with, uh, with wine. Don't be drunk with wine. In excess. Why? That's dissipation. Well, what's dissipation? It's, that means it's a waste. You know, that's like when you when you when you spill something of very uh, high cost out on the ground and it all evaporates. It's not used for its proper purpose. Don't be drunk with wine. That's dissipation. But be what? Filled with the Spirit. So, what does that mean? Well, it's the opposite of dissipation. It means be all that you're supposed to be. Fulfill what God has created you to do. Don't waste your, your life in terms of your service for God, which is all of your life. All right, so 
the idea of being immersed in the Spirit is, is not certainly not something foreign to the idea of what God had, had said he would do by pouring out his Spirit. But what does a baptism in the Holy Spirit mean for Yochanan and those who heard him? Matthew and Luke have the additional and fire, which is lacking in Mark. Mark doesn't say he'll be baptized, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He just says he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Matthew and Luke both have the additional and fire. Two of them, the Matthew, Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew, the Deuteronomy and the Evan Bohan, seem to conflate the synoptic witness, and they translate it this way. He will baptize you in the fire of the Holy Spirit. Well, maybe that's not so far off. It would seem that the couplet with the Holy Spirit and with fire may well be a hendaitis. I know, I know no better term than that one. It's a term made up of uh, three Greek words, one through two. Okay? A hendaitis is a literary... Uh, unit made up of two terms that really means one thing. You know, well and good. We say, oh, that's well and good. Well, we don't mean that it's well and that it's good. Well and good means it's okay. Everything's fine, right? Good and plenty. We have numbers of those terms in English language, and there seem to be numbers of those terms in biblical languages too. Formed on the background of the prophetic visions of judgment that often linked water and fire. Now, isn't that interesting? Have you, you know, um, fire and water don't seem to go together, except in the Bible. They regularly go together. In Daniel 7.10, we read of a river of fire that comes forth from the throne of the Ancient, ancient of Days. And in Psalm 50, verse 3, it combines fire with tempestuous waves. The fire comes out and, and consumes the, the tempestuous waves overtake them. In the apocalypse, the abyss is designated as a lake of fire. Moreover, the prophets combine the idea of wind and fire in the oracles of judgment. Remember, in the Hebrew, the word for wind is ruach, the words that we also translate spirit. For instance, in Isaiah 30, verses 27 to 28, we read, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. Burning is his anger and dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation and his tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent. That's combining, that's the water which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the people the bridle which leads to ruin. Here the fire that comes forth from the mouth of the Almighty is also an overflowing torrent. The combination of wind and fire is well in place as a symbol of judgment in the early Jewish literature as well. And if you take the time, you can look that up and read that section. Thus, the baptism of Yeshua as foretold by Yochanan is not of a twofold baptism, one with the Spirit and another with fire. At least this is how I'm interpreting it. But one that is characterized by the judging and purifying work of the Spirit. For those who are righteous, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire will function to purify them as citizens of the kingdom. For those who are unrighteous, the baptism will be one of judgment and condemnation. In either case, the judging or proving work of the Spirit will reveal the true nature of each one as the following metaphor of wheat and chaff gives further elucidation. So I don't think he's talking about the kind of... I don't think he's talking only about spirit baptism in relationship to salvation. I think he's talking about the baptism of the Spirit in terms of what the Spirit does in the final judging day where he brings about uh, either repentance on the one hand or condemnation on the other. And I think that's why it's combined with fire. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. 
This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit TorahResource.com. The, uh, the comment is made about Shavuot in Acts 2, and the tradition, it's in, I believe it's in Sanhedrin, I forget, uh, Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin, uh, I think it's in the 40s, but I don't remember, where there was the, the, the rabbinic tradition that at the giving of the Torah, the words of the Almighty came out like sparks from the hammer of a blacksmith. And when, the, when he spoke forth the words, it came forth as sparks of fire, and that it came out in 70 languages. And that the um, the sparks of fire actually lit upon people, and uh, if they received it, it brought blessing. If they rejected it, it brought judgment. And so you have also at Shavuot, you have the Spirit of God uh, being poured out, and there were t- tongues of fire, right, um, that appeared. And so, yeah, clearly you have you have that connection here. There's no doubt about it. But my point is this: is that I think even that connection at Shavuot is a foreshadow of an ultimate. Uh, judgment. It is it is uh, the means by which God separates between the. Again, we're mixing metaphors, but John's done that here in Matthew. Uh, is it trees that bear fruit or no fruit? Is it wheat and chaff? Is it uh, a torrent of water that inundates you and and destroys you, or is it uh, uh, you know the water that refreshes you, like the mikveh? So we have. Each of these is kind of two-sided. But I think he, he will baptize you with fire and uh, with, uh, with the Spirit and with fire. It obviously has a connection to Acts chapter 2. I mean, you almost wonder if, well, Matthew apparently had already experienced that or knew all about that when he wrote this. But that's what uh, Yochanan had been given a foreshadowing of. That the, You see... The giving of the Spirit at Shavuot was for the purpose of bringing in the nations. It was the harvest. The harvest is the final judgment. Because what happens in the ancient world after you harvest, what do you do? Yeah, you, uh, you bring it to the threshing floor, you beat it, you blow the chaff away, you take the wheat into the barn, which is what our next verse says, and you burn the rest of it. So the ingathering of the of the harvest, which begins at Shavuot, that is the, the 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 ingathering of the nations, is the beginning of the judgment. As soon as you have the harvest, you're thinking the winnowing is coming. The threshing floor is is there. Question? Yeah. Fire is both a purifying agent in the Bible, and it's also a judging agent. Okay. So Peter says that the, our, uh, the, that we might present to him the purified gold without any dross. Well, he's got metallurgy in mind there. He knows what it looks like to have, you know, all of the dross come up on the top of the of the smelting pot and it be dredged off and taken away until you have the pure metal. And that and Peter is is indicating that that's what tribulation is about. Tribulation is part of that fire. Um, so yes, it, it, that's what I'm saying. It's on both sides. For those who are His, the Spirit of God is a purifying, um, a making holy. For those who are not His, the Spirit of God is a condemning, a consuming fire, and He does both. Here, here we don't see, we, we don't yet have the idea of the Spirit of God as comforter. 
we have here the Spirit of God as the enactor of God's deciding judgment. Good fruit, not good fruit. Wheat, chaff. Okay, this is, and this brings up a whole other question, of course. Um, in the Athanasian Creed, of course, it, it says, you know, of the, the, of the Father, uncreated, unbegotten. Of the Son, uncreated, but begotten. Of the Spirit, uncreated, not begotten, but proceeding. What does that mean? Well, here's Yochanan saying, um, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay. And Yeshua says, until I go, he won't come. So, I mean... Was the Spirit of God active in the life of Yeshua? Of course he was. Was he active in the life of those who were believers at the time of Yeshua? Of course he was. Was he active in ancient Israel? Yes, of course. So what do you mean? Unless I go, he won't come. Well, there is this, the, 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 the axe is laid at the root of the tree. The, the, the judgment is coming. And the Spirit of God, when he comes, brings judgment. He's doing that now. He's, desert, he's dividing between those which belong to uh, God and, and those who do not. And we know that early on, the demonstration of his presence was a clear demonstration of God's mercy, right? That's what finally got Peter and the rest to accept the Gentiles. So you know what? The Spirit of God came upon them just like he did upon us. So there, you don't have the judging aspect of the Spirit, but you have the authenticating aspect of the spirit in in both the greek and the hebrew to prove something means not only it can prove it to be genuine or it can prove it to be fake and that's what judgment is in fact the the uh, the greek word krino can mean to sift to sift the you know to sift the wheat to get rid of the chaff it can to judge between what is good and what is bad and proving it to be true so th- that's i think what what John is talking about when he prophesies that when Yeshua comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And, I mean, there's some, there's some, obviously, you don't have to be charismatic to appreciate the presence of the Holy Spirit. I hope not. I mean, in some ways, rightfully so, we all are charismatic, right? Some more than others. But we're, we're all charismatic in the sense that the Spirit of God has, has decided to abide with us and in us in a mysterious way that we don't quite understand fully. Um, but the question is, what would your day be like if you didn't rely upon the Spirit of God? You might think to yourself, well, I don't know that I did rely upon Him today. Oh, really? Well, that, then that's probably what your life, you know, that, okay. In other words, if the presence of the Spirit of God would make any difference in your life, you better, you know, we should take note Because the mark of those who truly are born from above is that there is a presence of the Spirit of God in their life. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that, you know, that the Spirit of God is worn on our sleeves. But what I'm saying is that there is is an ability to follow in God's ways, which otherwise we recognize in and of ourselves we would not have. Absolutely. The question is, does the Spirit know our hearts? The Spirit... Yes, the Spirit is, is God. In a mysterious way, I don't understand that. But He has given all of the attributes of the Divine One. He was active as the Creator. He knows the hearts and in, uh, thoughts and intents of the heart. He inspired the Scriptures. He knows 
the future, obviously, because he told the prophets about it. So, yes, yes, he knows us. He knows us intimately, which is amazing that he he remains with us, right? I mean, the the reality of it is that the more that we know ourselves, we're surprised that anybody likes us, you know. So we we tend to we tend to try to put our best foot forward, so to speak, right? We, you know, um, but the Spirit of God knows us fully. But He also knows what we will be. He also knows what He's making us, because He is the Ruach Hakodesh. He is the Spirit of Holiness. He is the one who is His duty right now is he is the attendant of a bride for the father's son. He is taking care of the bride, making sure that she is perfectly ready when the uh, wedding day arrives. He's making sure that she's um, keeping her eyes on him and not on anyone else. He's teaching her how to be holy. He's teaching her how to be everything that the son desires so that... uh, she might be presented to him without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's that's what he's doing. And that's why he's very grieved when the bride is not acting as faithfully as she should during this betrothal period. You see, the metaphors that God has given us in marriage and in betrothal are so amazingly wonderful. And that's why it's so so bad when we give up on marriage and give up on betrothal because we lose we lose the pictures. So the more that we can we can make our own marriages and make you know, within our community can see the value and beauty of these things, the more I think we'll understand the role of the Spirit of God in his preparation, preparing the bride uh, for the groom who's coming. So, I mean, that's the metaphor that's given to us in the, in the Scriptures. And yes, he does know our thoughts. He knows all of our thoughts. He, there's no place that we go where, where we are hiding from him. So wherever we go, whatever we say, all that we all that we think and all that we do, it's it's maybe in secret to everyone else, but it's not in secret to him. And he knows, and we know that he knows, because he grieves when, uh, and grieving is a love word, right? Grieving is a love word. If you don't love somebody, you don't grieve for them. You tell them to just take a hike. You know, right? You know, if if somebody is of no value to you, you don't grieve for them. You're just happy that they're gone. You're just happy that they're out of your life. Okay? But grieving is a love word. So when the Spirit of God grieves, it's because He loves us, because He wants us, he, he, He's intent on us being what we're supposed to be. Ken? Uh, the question is how does the work of the Spirit before uh, Acts 2, how is it different, or we could say it the other way, how is this work of the Spirit after Acts 2 different than before? I don't think his work was any different in terms of drawing individuals to salvation. I think the salvation work that the, that the uh, Ruach has done has always been the same, bringing the soul to life, uh, uh, opening the eyes, opening the heart to the truth about God and so forth. The difference, however, I think, is that before Acts chapter 2, God had, in it, because of his, for his own reasons and purposes, had pretty much... Um, bounded the gospel to one nation, and that nation was Israel. There were some um, missionary forays out occasionally, but not very many and not very often. Anyone who would know the God of Israel, who would know the true God, would learn so through Israel by coming into contact with Israel and maybe even living within the confines of Israel. What was obviously different was that it had come the time for the harvest of the nations. 
And the promise that was made to Abraham in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, was now to be realized. The Messiah had come, had gained the victory, had done the work, and now had ascended on high. And the Spirit was to be poured out in such a way as to enable Israel, initially, right, to be the light to the nation she was supposed to do and to begin the ingathering of the Gentile, those chosen from the nations, into the people of God. So that was a new work. The ability to go and to uh, evangelize, to give, to make disciples of the nations, which is why I think tongues was the primary sign, because now they were going to be given the gospel in all, in, in all, the, in all the languages of the world. There was maybe also one, one additional aspect of that, and that is that now with the Gentiles coming in to the people of God, there were going to be some differences. And there was going to be the need for halakha to be established. How do we relate to, how do the Gentiles relate to Israel? How do they relate to their new being ingrafted? How do the Jews relate? How do we do this? What do we, how do we, you know, uh, how do we actually live this out? And so the Spirit of God was given uh, to uh, continue to inspire Scripture in such a way as to address these issues. And that's what I think is the epistles. Likewise, the Spirit of God uh, continued to gift people within this people of God, which the the congregation or assembly of Yeshua, in order to continue the expansion to all of the nations. So I think that's the primary difference. Well, I think uh, the question is, what are the giftings or the abilities uh, or responsibilities of ministry and so forth, rather than being passed down from through lineage like the priesthood uh, now given to individuals. Well, I think he always did, always did that. But c- clearly there was the gifting of individuals to function together within the, the congregation of Yeshua so that um, the success of the expansion of the kingdom would occur. In other words, so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's where it ultimately was going. That in in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, it, there's no doubt about the fact that there's a whole lot more in the apostolic scriptures about the Holy Spirit than there is in the Tanakh. All you have to do is look in the in a concordance under Spirit of God or Spirit and just see how many times. So I mean, the the expanded revelation that comes in the apostolic scriptures is clearly giving us more information about the role of the Spirit. But I think it's it's wider in terms of quantity, not different in terms of quality. I think he was doing always the same work in individuals throughout all time. That's at least my uh, initial thoughts. Okay, let's go on. So I think this baptized with the Holy Spirit in fire has more in this context to do with judgment and proving than it does with the later uh, ingathering of the, uh, of the Gentiles. But obviously it's connected. <clears throat> all right. Uh, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This mini parable provides a well-known picture for Yochanan's audience. The practice of taking a wooden fork with a long handle and scooping up the beaten sheaves of grain to allow the wind to separate the chaff from the wheat was a common sight in Israel. Moreover, the metaphor of winnowing had already been used by the prophets as pertaining to judgment. Isaiah speaks of the breath of God consuming the chaff and stubble. We could just as well say the ruach. And the psalmist speaks of the wicked who are like chaff blown away by the wind. 
Indeed, Yochanan may have had Malachi 4.1 in mind, for it combines the metaphor of the uprooted tree with that of the threshing floor, as we've already noted. Here, it is Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh who is the judge. Yet for Yochanan, the judgment comes from the hand of the Messiah. You see, in, in Malachi it says, uh, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evil doer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The winnowing fork in this case, however, is in the hand of Yeshua, and the threshing floor belongs to him. He is the executor of the Almighty's vengeance against the wicked, as well as the one who gathers in the grain. Indeed, in the Targum on Isaiah 33.11, the Memrah, which I'll explain, uh, or the Word of God is the one who destroys the chaff as a whirlwind. In the Targumim, which are the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible, the translators were had come to the conclusion that God does not touch this world. That if he were to touch the world, he would become contaminated. And so he, they never, whenever the text would say God did this or God did that or God uh, came down to, to look and see like it says in uh, Genesis 18 or, or God appeared to uh, Abraham, whenever they translated that, they said, they used the Aramaic word memrah, which means word. So instead of saying God came down, they said the word of God came down. Well, in Isaiah 33:11, which talks about the judgment of God, it's the memra of God in the Targum who does the destroying. You see, the the, the Tanakh as well as the, as well as the Apostolic Scriptures, they view the Messiah as both a, a, an exacting warrior who comes and slays the enemy, as well as this uh, gentle shepherd who cares for the sheep. It's both. The Jesus of the silver screen is not the Messiah of the Scriptures. He holds the keys of death and of Hades in his hands, which means what? He can lock the door and he can open it. See, he is, uh, he, he is a, a judge. He is righteous. He is holy. He is justice. Besides being the one who loves with an everlasting love. Besides being the one who is gentle and careful. He's both. He's not either or. We see that here. Yeshua is the one with the winnowing fork. Yeshua, the threshing floor belongs to him. He's the one that's meeting out the judgment. Note carefully that the wheat belongs to him. He will gather his wheat, right? But it, it isn't his chaff. But he will burn the chaff with fire. Yoganon's concluding remarks continue to emphasize the need to prepare oneself for the coming one. How can we prepare ourselves for the coming one? Well, don't think to yourself, boy, I better really, uh, I better, you know, roll up my sleeves and start doing a lot more good works than I'm doing. Well, that's fine. You should do that. Yeah, go ahead and do that. But don't think that that's going to prepare you for his coming unless your heart is right with him, you see. It still is a recognition that uh, in me, that is in my flesh. There dwells not one good thing. But what he asks of us is simple faith in him. Lord, I have known that you said that if I would confess my sins and admit I have no way, then you will make a way for me. And I believe that. I accept that. I accept that Yeshua did die for my sins and that he did pay the penalty. And as a result, I will never need to pay the penalty. You see, the message of the epistles 
well, the message of the whole scriptures. But it's particularly true. Paul makes it very, very clear. We don't do righteous deeds because we're afraid that if we don't, we might get zapped. Our motivation for doing righteousness is not a motivation of fear from a God who's going to conquer us or destroy us if we don't. That is not what happens. What happens is this, that we are overcome by his love. We have died to ourselves because we have died with him and we have been resurrected in newness of life. We long to be righteous because he has made us new from the inside out. It isn't that we don't struggle still with the remaining flesh, but he has changed us. We love him, not because we're afraid if we don't, he's, gonna, he, he's going to destroy us. We love him because what? He, he first loved us. That's the work of the Spirit of God. And so we're not, we're not concerned about the threshing floor because we believe he will carry us to his house in that basket. We won't show up in the fire because he's careful with the wheat. The wheat belongs to him. So, you know, Yochanan's hard words of judgment ought to be hard words to those who don't know Yeshua. And Yeshua is not known simply by saying, oh, yeah, okay, I I accept him. Yeah. Look, why are you coming out here and wasting my breath, Yochanan says. Bring forth works worthy of repentance. You say you have repentance, you don't have the works, you're a liar. You don't have repentance. And you stand in, in, in the place of judgment when, when Yeshua comes. That's what Yochanan's saying. And it's the same message today. It's no different. Did you have a question? Okay, good point. The emphasis is made from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. That says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. All of it is not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Not by works, lest any one of us should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in the Messiah Yeshua for good works, for the mitzvot, which he has foreordained that we should walk in them. In other words, he's already planned that out. It's pretty good how he foreordained it. He gave Moshe the Torah, told us exactly what the mitzvot were, so that we would know who we are, what we're to do. This same metaphor of chaff and wheat as a picture of judgment is found in the rabbinic literature. For instance, in Midrash Psalms, Rabbi Hanina commented on what Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish said, Why are the children of Israel likened to wheat? The parable of the householder and his steward will tell you. When the steward comes to cast up his accounts with the householder, the householder does not ask, How many wicker baskets of straw are you bringing into the house storehouse? Or, How many bundles of stubble are you bringing into the granary? Instead, he lets the steward consign the stubble to the fire and scatter the straw before the wind. What then does he say? Take heed. Take the sum of the measures of wheat you bring into the granary, for it is life for the world. And then in the ensuing context, um, the uh, Midrash notes that God is the householder, and in this case, Moses is the steward. So we will see this motif kind of all the way through Matthew, is that Yeshua stands like the second Moses or like the final Moses who stands at Sinai, was at Sinai when Moses was there. Then Yeshua arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. And the synoptic accounts of Yeshua's mikvah at the hands of Yochanan bear numbers of differences, but many of the commentators have, it seems to me, exaggerated the problems. You can see, I'm not just giving it to you there so you don't have to flip back and forth. 
You can see that Matthew includes a couple of verses that the others don't. And those actually are the problematic verses. Well, I don't say they're problematic. They're, they're just more fun than the others. What these two verses relate to, you know, when Yeshua came, right, uh, verse 14, uh, John says to him, Hey, look, why am I, why are you asking me to baptize you? I should be, I'm the one that you should baptize, right? And then Yeshua says, Look, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. All right. So those aren't in Mark or Luke. Uh, there are a few other slight differences, but essentially I'll let you read that. Let's go to verse 14. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? How did Yochanan recognize Yeshua? In John 1.29 and following, it might appear as though Yochanan was unacquainted with Yeshua. It says in verse 31, I did not recognize him. But to suggest that Yochanan, a relative of Yeshua, had not been informed by his mother about Yeshua's miraculous birth or that he was ignorant of Yeshua altogether is hardly likely. It, it makes a lot more sense to me that they, were probably, they probably played together as kids, right? They were only six months apart. Far more likely is that Yochanan was well acquainted with Yeshua, but that the statement of John, that is, the Gospel of John, should be understood to mean that Yochanan had not recognized Yeshua as the Messiah. I didn't recognize that he was the Messiah. In fact, the words of John inform us that Yochanan came to realize who Yeshua actually was only after his mikvah, the descent of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove and the heavenly voice. I did not recognize him but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. He realized after the fact that the very purpose for his ministry of of baptism, in view of repentance, was so that Yeshua himself could be openly shown to be the Messiah. Now, I, I didn't realize all that he was until he came up out of the water, the Spirit descended upon him, and we heard the, the bat kol, we heard the voice of, of, of heaven. Then we said, oh, he is the Messiah. Okay. And then Yochanan probably steps back a bit and says, so that's why the Spirit was prompting me to do all this baptizing in the Jordan. Ultimately, the reason was so that Yeshua himself would come and be publicly manifested as the Messiah. Question? Mm -hmm. The point is being made that Elizabeth certainly, uh, Mary would have told Elizabeth what she heard from from the angel. Um, and uh, Elizabeth certainly would have told uh, Yochanan, John, you would imagine, right? Okay. But that doesn't mean John believed it. I mean, I, I keep emphasizing this. Yeshua was common in some ways. He was very uncommon in other ways, but he was common. Do you really think that this guy that, you know, you grew up with who's working in, in Joseph's shop, he's the Messiah? Uh, comments being made, it's very possible that the concept of Messiah was more of this warrior king rather than uh, savior, redeemer. Uh, but from what we read in John chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist basically said, I didn't recognize him until he was baptized. Now, I don't think it means he didn't recognize him knowing his name and where he lived and all that. I, I didn't recognize who he was for real, for, for fullness. Uh, let me suggest at least one option on that very question. And that question is, well, then, if he didn't recognize him to be the Messiah, why did he say, I'm not worthy to, you know, to carry your shoes? Here is at least a su- suggestion. Moreover, it seems likely that it was Yochanan's close familiarity with Yeshua that caused him consternation when asked to baptize him. 
Yochanan's baptism was a mikvah in view of repentance. As a humble man, he would have been fully aware of his own shortcomings. And as someone well acquainted with Yeshua, he would have known of his sterling character and his utter righteous life within the community, not to mention his vast understanding of Torah even at an early age. In other words, Yochanan the baptizer was a humble man. And, and if he knew Yeshua well, which I'm presuming he did, he would have said, this man doesn't need to come into a mikvah of repentance. Everything he does has been righteous. He's known as the most righteous person in our village, in our town, or whatever. Putting himself next to Yeshua, Yochanan could only imagine that in terms of a mikvah reflecting repentance, he was the one in need, not Yeshua. Yes, question. Very good. When the question is being asked. When John was in prison, he, asked, he sent his disciples and said, Go ask Yeshua, are you the Messiah or do we wait for another? Again, why do you suppose? Because in his mind, what's the Messiah supposed to do? He's supposed to conquer Rome. And here is John, the forerunner of the Messiah, rotting in prison. Something's not right here. We've missed something. And what does Yeshua tell him? The lame walk, the blind see. In other words, I want you to look at this from a different dimension. The idea that Yochanan desired for Yeshua to administer a mikvah on his behalf because he thought in doing so he would receive a greater measure of the Spirit is far-fetched. This is common that, you know, Yochanan saying, Oh, I want the Spirit and fire. Please baptize me. That, that's, that's, out of the, that's out of the context. As noted above, the baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire is eschatological as far as Yochanan is concerned. He's talking about the final judgment. This had far more to do with proving those who were righteous and those who were not than endowing individuals with special gifting or power. Matthew does not present Jesus as bestowing his spirit and fire baptism on anyone. The cross and resurrection are focal for him. And writing for, uh, after Pentecost, Matthew doubtless believes Jesus' baptism was bestowed on his people later than the time he is writing about. So, Yochanan would not have uh, been asking, well, I want you to baptize me so I can get the spirit and fire. That's, that, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, maybe we can just, uh, okay, we'll, we'll just go down through this page and leave you hanging so that you can, so that you can, you can come back, you come back with your, with your uh, explanation. Verse 15, but Yeshua answering said to him, permit it at this time for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So Yeshua says to him, permit, you know, go ahead and baptize me at this time or be witness to my mikvah for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Here we have the first words of Yeshua recorded by Matthew, and they contain two important words that will continue to characterize much of his teaching, the words fulfill and righteousness. Indeed, his appearance as the incarnate one was in fulfillment of the prophet's words and the means by by which sinners may become righteous. But in these first words of our master, we are met with more questions than answers. What exactly does his explanation to Yochanan mean? We empathize with Yochanan's quandary as to why Yeshua would seek his assistance in a mikvah of repentance. In what way was Yeshua's mikvah in the Jordan a means by which all righteousness would be fulfilled? Numbers of suggestions to this dilemma have been offered, but here are six. Well, that Yeshua's mikvah was anticipatory of his own baptism of death. So he was really saying, go ahead and I'm going to do a mikvah and this should tell everybody that I'm going to die for them. That doesn't work for me, but that's not an uncommon interpretation. In this case, Matthew's use of righteousness would be forensically understood. In other words, uh, for in this way, in my actual dying, 
which the baptism is a foreshadow of. In my actual dying, I will bring righteousness to everyone. Secondly, that Yeshua's mikvah was undertaken in light of the Torah commandment to wash oneself with water as a means of regaining ritual purity after becoming unclean. He did this as a necessary first step of consecration to the mission for which he had come. Some consider that. Number three, that Yeshua offered an example in his baptism for all who would become his followers. And thus, as they also were baptized as Christians, they would be reckoned as righteous. In this view, when Yeshua says that it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, he includes all those who would undergo Christian baptism. That one doesn't work for me either. Yochanan was calling to the people uh, to repent, uh, was calling the people to repentance and righteous living, the fruits of repentance. Yeshua undergoes a mikvah in order to declare to them that the righteousness demanded by Yochanan would be fulfilled by him and all who would follow his righteous life. So he's saying, look, I'm, I'm making an example for you. As long as you continue to repent and confess your sins, everything's going to be okay. Uh, or number five, Yeshua did not actually need a mikvah, but he underwent one in the sight of the people in order not to offend them and in order to win them to his point of view. Like paying taxes to Caesar, the mikvah was done so that others would not be offended and in order to, quote, get along in the world. It's what Jewish people do. So if I'm going to come and be the leader of Jewish people, I better do a mikvah. Or number six, on the basis of the word fulfill, plerao, since it is used almost exclusively by Matthew in connection with fulfillment of prophecy of the Tanakh, Yeshua under, undergoes the mikvah in order, to, in order publicly to be seen as the Messiah who fulfills Scripture and therefore proves God to be faithful and righteous in keeping His promises. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. 